This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the substantive role foreign educated physicians play in U.S. healthcare and the challenges or barriers they face in obtaining medical licenses to practice in this country. With me to discuss the topic is Mr. Neil Simon, the president and co-founder of the American University of Antigua College of Medicine. Mr. Simon, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. Mr. Simon's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, the U.S. trains far too few physicians. Among comparative countries, the U.S. ranks towards the bottom of the list of medical graduates per 100,000 residents. In addition, the number of medical residencies in this country has remained relatively stagnant over the past 20 years. These factors help explain why the U.S. currently suffers from a shortage of physicians, particularly primary care physicians. The Health Resources and Services Administration, or HRSA, estimates that there are well over 5,800 primary care physician shortage areas. This also explains why the Association of Medical Colleges projects the physician shortage will grow to upwards of 100,000 physicians over the next 12 years. The shortage would be far worse if it were not for the fact that the U.S. healthcare market employs approximately 250,000 foreign-trained doctors. Most of these foreign-trained physicians are also non-U.S. citizens. The U.S. could employ more foreign-trained physicians, however, these graduates face significant challenges or barriers in order to practice in the U.S. Barriers to medical licensing explains in part why approximately 60,000 foreign-trained physicians residing in the U.S. are not practicing. With me again to discuss foreign-trained physicians is Mr. Neil Simon. So, Mr. Simon, with that as background, can you provide a brief uh, overview of your work or your school uh, again, uh, University of Antigua College of Medicine. For example, what are yes. the demographics of your students, their success rate, and their work in the U.S.? Well, uh, American University of Antigua College of Medicine was started understanding that the United States was facing this tremendous physician shortage and that U.S. medical schools were not producing nearly enough physicians to deal with that shortage. As you said, the WMC has indicated that by 2030, there'll be a shortage of somewhere over 100,000 physicians in the United States. Uh, American University of Antigua College of Medicine was also concerned about the lack of diversity in U.S. medical schools and therefore in the uh, physician population. Uh, to just give you one example, um, U.S. medical schools um, an average between 6 and 7% uh, black African-American, that's the category they use, uh, matriculants in their first-year class, um, which uh, has never changed despite the fact that they've said that they've had numerous programs to address the lack of diversity. Um, American University of Antigua's graduating class, not its entering class, but its graduating class, had over 20% black African-American. 
African-American students who have obtained residency positions in the United States. And most of these students um, either did not get into a U.S. medical school or never applied to a U.S. medical school because the numbers of black African-Americans are so small in those schools. Um, so uh, our population deals with both of those issues. And it's been generally recognized that um, how important diversity is to the practice of medicine. Um, in fact, most U.S. medical schools have courses in diversity now and cultural competency. Uh, we, we also do, but we like to say more than having courses, our students live diversity. Mm-hmm. So, so we think that we uh, provide um, uh, a graduate population that deals with both of those issues. Of course, it makes a small dent in the student population, in the uh, physician population, but um, certainly in terms of diversity, it's making a big difference. So most of your students uh, are U.S. citizens, correct? Yes, I'm, I'm sorry. About, about 85% of our students are U.S. citizens, and um, we have about 10% of our student body, I guess, is from the Caribbean region, uh, and uh, if there was an international medical school located in Antigua, we have a responsibility to help provide physicians for that region also. Uh, many of those students practice in the Caribbean, but some of them are come and practice in the United States also. Now, your school uh, notes particularly that many of your students go on to practice in the U.S. in primary care, and I mentioned the shortage thereof. What is the percent of your graduates who go into the primary care field? About 76%. uh, I mean, that changes a little from year to year, but uh, it averages around 76% of our graduates go into primary care. where U.S. medical school graduates, I think the number is around 30%. Okay, and that explains, obviously, the latter percent explains the shortage. What explains why your uh, graduates go into primary care? Is it just the pragmatic reality that that's where the residencies are available? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons for it. One is our applicants tend to be older than U.S. medical school applicants and have had some experience not all, but some of them have had experience in the healthcare field, not as physicians, some as nurses, some as PAs and other areas of healthcare. And I think that's gotten them to become interested in direct patient care, which is what you see much more of in primary care. So I think their their interest in going into primary care is already there, and that's one of the reasons they select us. Now, by the same token, um, if somebody wants to be an ophthalmologist, they know that by going to an international school, they're probably not going to get a residency in ophthalmology, um, just like if they went to most U.S. medical schools, except for the top ones, they wouldn't get a residency in ophthalmology. So some of it's self-selected, and some of it is because, you know, the, the, those are the, um, the primary care, the areas that are most open to them. Okay, thank you. Let me just ask before we move on to uh, the, the problems I suggested relative to foreign trained actually achieving or attaining licenses to practice in the U.S., there's a, some research I read relative to the quality of care foreign trained uh, physicians provide. What could you say about beyond their caring for 
uh, providing relief relative to reduction in disparities. Um, but what could you say about the quality of care they deliver? And per my mention of Hearst's data, the fact that they are serving the underserved or are largely uh, more poor communities. Well, two things. One, there have been number there have been a number of studies conducted, including one years ago by the Federation of State Medical Boards, which was never published uh, because it showed that, in fact, uh, controlling for gender years out of medical school and um, an area of specialty, there was no difference between the quality of care of an international medical graduate and a U.S. medical school graduate. So, um, and um, the, the fact is that our graduates and international graduates are uh, statistically are much more likely to practice in areas where there are uh, greater physician shortages, both in rural areas and in urban areas where there's a shortage of physicians. Yes, I saw, I saw in uh, the literature, and this is per the uh, American Immigration Council, a document they put out in January, that they disproportionately practice in the poorest, oldest, and most geographically isolated regions. For example, where the per capita income is 15K, 42.5% of all docs are foreign trained. Um, so it is actually impressive, uh, the work they're doing, both the quality and the population's they're serving. Let, let's go to this issue of, of licensing, uh, and let's start with residencies. As I noted, that uh, the number of residencies have been largely the same uh, since '97 or the last 21 years. Um, what success has, say, for your example, your students had in obtaining residencies? At say, what percent, and/or uh, what's the challenge for foreign-trained medical graduates to obtain residencies in the U.S.? I think there are two uh, uh, things that issues that affect that. The first is our students, um, whether they're foreign international medical school graduates or U.S. citizens who go to an international medical school, have the opportunity to participate in critical clerkships, the third and fourth year of medical school, at hospitals in the United States, and. Um, when directors of medical education choose um, residents, one of the primary uh, uh, criteria is how those students perform in clinical clerkships at hospitals in the United States. Mm-hmm. So any any student who's doing a clerkship at a hospital in the United States, assuming they're doing a good job, increases their chances of obtaining a residency at that hospital because the people see how they perform in the hospital with patients. Um, so that gives them an advantage over foreign, foreign-trained physicians who may not have had that opportunity. The second problem that foreign internationally trained students have is with the immigration laws. An international uh, graduate who is uh, from outside the U.S., uh, needs to get a visa to practice, and especially under some of the policies under the present administration, um, that is getting more and more difficult. In fact, um, in an article I recently read, uh, it said that 4,000 foreign internationally trained physicians who had been selected for residencies uh, 
had not been able to get a visa um, as of the time of that article, which is about two weeks ago. Which means that hospitals stuck without a resident. The um, applicant um, who had, believes they have a residency position can't get in the country to fulfill the uh, the obligations as a resident. So just I did read generally it is the case about ninety five percent of U.S. trained uh, medical school graduates land a residency across the board. Uh, foreign trained and foreign non U.S. citizen graduates receive um, their chances about 50-50 or 50 percent. So let's go, sure. to, let's go to, um, let's stay with this. So beyond uh, landing a residency, there are other, um, and of course having English proficiency, which um, may appear be obvious, but there are, other, yeah. there are other criteria. So for example, they have to pass this U.S. medical licensing exam. Could you uh, tell us what's that? What is that about, or what the details thereof are? Yes, the, the, in the United States, the medical licensing exam is basically a three-part examination, um, which is comprised of basically four exams. The first exam is what's called USMLE Step One, which tests a, a student's knowledge of the basic sciences. Um, with the idea that that will indicate whether a student has the requisite knowledge in the basic sciences to start their clinical uh, portion of their medical education. Um, and, in fact, some states have laws that say that for foreign students, foreign-trained students, excuse me, um, must pass step one in order to begin their clinical training in uh, a particular state. That's not true for U.S. medical school students. Then there's what's called step two clinical skills and step two clinical knowledge, which um, you have to pass those two exams in order to obtain a residency. Um, and um, then after residency, but before full licensure, you have to take step three of the United States medical licensing exam. Now, our we're in a position where our um, students have passed step one in about a 96% pass rate and step two CK and CS in the high 80s on their first time as first-time takers. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, that also presents a problem for people who are being who are non-U.S. citizens who uh, want to come in and participate in residency, it means in many cases they have to come to the United States or some very limited sites outside the United States to take those exams so that they can be um, an applicant for a residency position. Okay, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're a uh, foreign, foreign-trained medical school graduate and you complete a residency overseas, you're still required to participate in and work through a residency in the U.S., correct? That's right. You could, be, you could have been practicing as a, uh, as a specialist for 30 years in another country, and actually you, could come, you might be able to come and teach at a medical school, but you can't practice medicine outside of it. Right, and I did... three years of residence. And I did note that uh, foreign-trained, or did notice rather that foreign-trained uh, medical school graduates are actually more likely to teach disproportionately in academic settings and do more research. 
but per your comment, they're not able to practice. That's true, and that that, that may be one of the reasons. Um, is because they're, they're they're unable. It would be very difficult for somebody who practiced medicine for twenty years, um, even at the highest level. First of all, be to come back and do three years of residency training, but also to pass. You would still have to pass the the, the United States Medical Licensing Exam, and for somebody who's uh, out of medical school for years to pass a basic science exam would be a very, very difficult thing to do. Yes, uh, good point. Thank you. So let's let's go to the, the, the visa issue. Um, so you said under the current administration, there's a backlog for visas granted even for those foreign uh, trained graduates who've obtained a residency in the U.S. Uh, likely these are J-1 visas, correct? You- yeah, I believe so. I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert in that area, but... Um, I know that um, the hospital has to apply for the visa for the resident, and I believe it's a J-1 visa. Right, and they're because they're sponsoring uh, the student, correct? Yeah, yes. they're the sponsoring institution. So I, the, the practical question here is, what does the graduate do who has formally a residency but can't obtain their visa? What, what's the backup plan, or what, what are well, their options? It's it's difficult for me to answer that question because this is the first year this has really happened. Um, certainly to to a large extent. I mean, in other years, in most years, um, the majority of uh, foreign internationally trained medical school graduates who obtained the residency were able to get the visa. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, residency start basically July first. Right. And uh, as of, again, as of two weeks ago or so, there were, I think, 4,000 um, international medical school graduates, foreign, foreign international medical school graduates who had not been able to obtain it easier. There is a, so, there, there is a window, correct me if I'm wrong, that you can, obtaining a visa, if you're willing to work in an underserved area or with underserved patients for three years, um, you can apply for a waiver. So yes, uh, there's that exception. That's, that, that, that's usually for physicians. So I don't know that somebody who was applying for a residency would have that open to them. And I also don't know how uh, many um, people who are eligible for that program okay. um, would get visas now anyway. My follow-up question now is, leaving aside the current, say, kerfuffle in foreign-trained uh, physicians or doctors um, receiving a visa such that they can uh, participate in a residency, is there any... Uh, I've heard no discussion in D.C. about uh, trying to address this issue or bring more uh, foreign-trained uh, graduates into the, into the U.S. market to address this shortage in D.C. relative to policy fixes or opportunities to address this again. Uh, have you heard of any discussion uh, in this regard? I have not. I have not uh, in fact, it seems that any discussions that are being held uh, go in the opposite direction, unfortunately. Oh, to, to, to increase the barriers for their ability to come here and study and practice? Yes, yes. Um, 
And I think that's true at all levels, at the undergraduate level also. Okay, my, my final question is, your school, um, again, most of your students uh, are already U.S. citizens. Um, no, I should certainly mention we also have that... Uh, uh, whenever I think of percentages, I always come up with more than 100%. <laughs> forgive me. But uh, around 15% of our, 10 to 15% of our students are also Canadian citizens who don't have necessarily have the same problems. So my question is, for the, the minority of your students in your particular circumstance, where, where are they going alternatively? I'm assuming the Canadians are going to Canada. But where is their other opportunity uh, for them? Well, there, again, there are other opportunities, and we have um, some students who uh, practice in Great Britain. There are some students who uh, practice in India. There are a number of students who have uh, practiced in Jamaica, and um, obviously we have some students who practice in, in Antigua and other Caribbean countries. But that's... In the past, that's always been my choice. Right. Right. Okay. My, my, my last question is, I'm curious to know, what, what attracts, uh, obviously it's a competitive process, you don't get admitted, so that's partially the answer, but what, what attracts uh, students or is attracting students to your college uh, at the University of Antigua? Well, I think there are a couple of things. One is that we have... Um, there, there are basically two states that have the largest number of residencies, positions. That's New York and California. And in order to do, participate in those residencies, you have to be approved by those states. There are very few um, international medical schools that have that approval, and we do have that approval. The second thing is that... Um, so you have a pipeline. Yes, and we, and we have... Uh, states have actually done site visits of our school and then approved the school. So that gives people, I think, a sense of confidence that they're going to get a quality medical education. The second thing, and this is has the same kind of result, but we're one of the few schools in the Caribbean whose students are eligible for Title IV U.S. government loans. And there's a process you have to go through to get that. So that's also attractive to students, obviously, that it's an international school in which they can get student loans. And the third thing with diversity is I think the fact that, for example, um, that uh, over 20% of our students are underrepresented minorities, and U.S. medical schools have uh, less than 7% underrepresented minorities, makes it a more attractive destination for people uh, uh, of color to to come to, um, as well as the faculty. One of the things that uh, in my research that absolutely amazed me was that in U.S. medical schools, the number of black African-American basic science faculty, the average at a U.S. medical school, is three. And 25% of our faculty are um underrepresented minorities. So I think the fact that um, people know people or see people who have succeeded, who are um, come from the same type of background, draws people to our school. Yeah, like themselves. Right, correct. Yes. Yes. Okay, uh, sadly, um, Mr. Sam, we're at our time boundary, but I I do generally appreciate this overview. Um, Again, considering how critical 
sort of workforce issues are, how fundamental they are, uh, that this question continues year over year to remain begged, our problem is, I, I find, uh, let's just say disappointing, I suppose. Uh, but thank you for well, your overview. I generally appreciate it. Sure. It's, uh, I, we face a scary situation in the future, um, especially with uh, such a large percentage of doctors being over 60 years old. You know, and I'll just make one point to your credit. I did note the statistic uh, in your literature that you also have a, a significant percent of, of your students who work in geriatrics, and of course we have a rapidly aging population, and relative to the workforce a supply problem uh, that's most poignant as it relates to uh, uh, physicians trained to provide geriatric care. That's right, uh, but... Uh the percentage of the U.S. population over 65 is supposed to grow by 55% by the year 2030. And obviously, you know, unfortunately, the older you are, the more uh, you need uh, the care of a physician. Yes, absolutely. Okay, Mr. Simon. To. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. Uh, yes. Thank you so much, Mr. Simon. No problem. Nice talking to you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.